0: Hello and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Hello and welcome back to everybody all around the world. This is going to be episode number 32. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode. Talked about some good stuff in that episode, I believe, and I think I've got a really good episode for you here as well. We're going to get into some really good stuff here. This is going to be one of those, uh, one of those episodes that I think are just, uh, probably one of the more important episodes that we, that we, uh, discuss, at least for this period of time, uh, 1774 to 1775. Broadcasting on this podcast, also on the, uh, Patreon side of things, patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman, if you care to check that out. And thank you so much for supporting this podcast, getting the word out about it, sharing the podcast with uh, friends and neighbors and all the rest of it. And on that note, uh, just a little inside baseball on the numbers here. I look at this periodically, you know, about once a month or so I take a look at this. As far as the, the states in the in the United States, that is, that uh, are the highest downloads for this podcast, it's actually still California. Uh, it was Texas there for the longest time, and then California took the lead a while back, and it, it still remains in the lead, followed closely by Texas. It's a it's a close run thing. So if, uh, if you folks in Texas want to take the title back, then uh, <laughs> so to speak, uh, you can uh, just share it with your friends and neighbors and get the downloads up on the podcast there in Texas. Uh, we would like to see that. Uh, the third place finisher is Pennsylvania. So the, the highest number of downloads for this podcast are California, Texas, and Pennsylvania in that order. So I want to thank all the folks out there in California supporting the uh, the podcast. It's uh, really great to have California uh, listening to this podcast, as well as Texas and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, of course, that's Benjamin Franklin country out there. And uh, obviously very close to the origins of the founding of this country, the uh, Continental Congress meeting over there and debating these issues that we're talking about. And we're going to read a letter from Congress, I believe, here on this episode today. It's going to be very interesting, a letter written from Congress to... Uh, General Gage, the uh, the, the uh, military de facto leader for Massachusetts, put there by King George III to basically ride roughshod over the colonists, so to speak. So this is going to be a very, very interesting letter, one that we've not really read before, Not nothing quite like that. So get ready for uh, for that. And with all that said, uh, we're just going to get straight into it today, straight away, and get to that information. And I hope you uh, are going to stick with me on this ride through this podcast episode. It's going to be a good one, folks. It's going to be a good one. I think you're really going to enjoy this. And as always, it's an honor to have you here with me. You know, before too long, we're going to be hitting episode like episode number fifty. Goodness, we're get, we're, we're moving right along. So let's keep this uh, let's keep this train going, and let's get into our discussion on this episode today right now. All right, let's get into this. The much anticipated well, I don't know how anticipated it was, but this is uh, going to be very interesting. We're going to cover the letter to General Gage written from Congress in October of seventeen seventy four. So the Congress is actually writing to the military governor slash dictator of Massachusetts, the guy who was put there in charge... After the, basically the charter of Massachusetts was effectively dissolved by the king and parliament and martial law declared essentially in Boston, military governor put in place in there. So this letter is going to be Congress trying to appeal to General Gage. To tr- you know, again, keep in mind that people have been watching these fortifications being built around the city of Boston by General Gage and his troops. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Is this defensive? Is this offensive? Is he, does he mean to attack the people? What in the world is going on here? What is he doing? And they're trying to address the intolerable acts and all the rest of this and so on and so forth. So let's get into it. Again, letter from Congress to General Gage, written Tuesday, October the 11th, 1774. Written from Philadelphia. Quote, Sir, the inhabitants of the town of Boston have informed us that the representatives of His Majesty's faithful subjects in all the colonies from Nova Scotia to Georgia, that the fortifications erecting within that town, the frequent invasions of private property and the repeated insults they receive from the soldiery have given them great reason to suspect a plan is formed very destructive to them, and tending to overthrow the liberties of America. Your Excellency cannot be a stranger to the sentiments of America with respect to the Acts of Parliament under the execution of which those happy people are oppressed, the approbation universally expressed in their conduct and the determined resolution of the colonies for the preservation of their common rights to unite their opposition to those acts. In consequence of these sentiments, they have appointed us the guardians of their rights and liberties, and we are under the deepest concern that whilst we are pursuing every dutiful and peaceable measure to procure a cordial and effectual reconciliation between Great Britain and the colonies, your excellency should proceed in a manner that bears no hostile an appearance, and which even those oppressive acts do not warrant. We entreat your excellency to consider what a tendency this conduct must have to irritate and force a free people, however well disposed to peaceable measures, into hostilities." which may prevent the endeavors of this Congress to restore a good understanding with our parent state and may involve us in the honors of a civil war. In order, therefore, to quiet the minds and remove the reasonable jealousies of the people that they may not be driven to a state of desperation being fully persuaded of their pacific disposition towards the king's troops, could they be assured of their own safety? We hope, sir, you will discontinue the fortifications in and about Boston, Prevent any further invasions of private property, restrain the irregularities of the soldiers, and give orders that the communication between the town and country may be open, unmolested, and free. Signed, by order, and in behalf of the General Congress, Peyton Randolph President. End quote. Mm Boy, there's a lot going on in there. So this line up at the top, quote, Great reason to suspect a plan is formed very destructive to them, intending to overthrow the liberties of America end quote this again, you know the, these people really do understand what's going on here. they want they want to think that this is possibly a defensive thing only, but they really they, they understand based on the level of operation going on here, the number of troops being funneled into the city, that very soon, possibly, there are going to be offensive operations conducted in and around the city of Boston. The people of Boston sense it. They know what's happening, despite any statement to the contrary. And then this section here I find fascinating as well. Quote, The determined resolution of the colonies for the preservation of their common rights to unite in their opposition to those acts, end quote. And that would be the intolerable acts, which we've talked about before. Determined resolution of the colonies. Basically, they're determined to be free. And I'll say it again. If you're not determined to be free and act accordingly... Any government, not just a tyrannical government, but any government, will smell that in the water and move on it. They will use it against you to expand their power and wealth. And eventually, they may may very well lash out to hurt you in a very serious kind of way. And I'll say that again. They may endeavor to hurt you in a serious kind of way. Why, Roman, whatever do you mean? Well, you know, just look back through history. You know, and why, why in the world would the government try to lash out to hurt you? You know, because you're weak, that's why. You know, when you don't act like people determined to be free, the government sees that as weakness. If you're not determined to be free, they're just gonna, they're gonna come and take it away from you at some point. They're gonna do it. Why? Because that's what governments do. You know, people really do trust the, trust government in some, in some places, in some circles, a little bit too much. They, they trust the government to be the guardians of their liberty. Why? I don't know. Because the founding fathers sure didn't. Like I said before, if the, if the, if the government was the guardian of liberty, the Bill of Rights would be unnecessary. The government, the Bill of Rights is basically there to tell the government what they can't do. You can't do this and you can't do that. You can make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. You can't do that. You can't levy excessive fines and penalties or cruel and unusual punishment. You can't do that. Why? Because governments often want to do that. And they have done it in the past and will do it again and are doing it right now, this very second, this day that you're listening to this podcast. Some government somewhere is doing those things. Guaranteed. The problem is, as you get you get into a place like the United States and you get this very arrogant mindset of, well, it can't happen here. It can't happen in the United States because nothing bad ever happens here after all. It's just sweetness and sunshine in the United States, and the government's just lovely. Really? Do you really believe that? I don't know what kind of Kool-Aid you're drinking, but it probably, uh, probably ought to switch that up. I don't think it's doing you any favors. So again, you know, don't... always, Always behave like a people determined to be free. Always do that, because if you don't, again it it smells like weakness to a government it just does and governments can't help themselves even even a government largely composed of good people will eventually just they can't resist themselves it's like um it's like it's like an animal you know, it's just it just has to do what the animal does no matter what. You can try to do this and try to do that to 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 tame the animal or to try to take this instinct out of the animal, but it just can't help itself. And I hate to have to put it that way, but that's reality. You know, on this podcast, we this isn't the warm and fuzzy Disneyland version of history. This is real history that we're talking about on this on this podcast. And it's it's dangerous and it's deadly and it's bloody and it's violent. That's history. And governments, oftentimes, are the ones that get really bloody and really violent on a scale that, like, nobody else can do. I mean, the only the only, the only, only kind of people that can hurt you more than your own government is an invading army. That's it. Other than that, your government is the most dangerous thing that you live around. Do you realize that? Your government is the most dangerous thing that you live around. That's just the way that it is. Now, that doesn't mean that every government is dangerous all the time. That's not true. The United States government, by and large, has been a very peaceable government for the most part. Now there's exceptions to that, periodically and in varying degrees. Some days, you know, these people these people wake up and they just they just decide they wanna they wanna do something truly oppressive. I'm I'm dead serious about that. And so they just go ahead and set about doing it. Why? Because they can't help themselves. And every once in a while they go about and do something truly illegal. They break the law. The government breaks its own laws, or they break the laws that the people put in place, like the Constitution, for example, and the Bill of Rights. You think the bill, the, the the United States government in its entire history has never violated the Bill of Rights? Of course it has, and it, it's done it with impunity, and it's bragged about it and done it happily. I'm not making this up, and we've talked about that before. You know, I, one example I gave was uh, the income tax in the late 1800s. There was some portion of that that was declared unconstitutional and illegal by the Supreme Court of the United States, and it was. I've gone back and I've looked at that, that, uh, that law, and the Supreme Court had very good reasoning to declare it unconstitutional. And again, don't get any ideas, folks, that you don't have to—that, you, you, oh my gosh, the income tax is unconstitutional. That's why we have an amendment. An amendment was passed to fix that problem. So that, so that it's so that it's legal now. Just FYI, in case you start getting any ideas. But that's a perfectly that's a perfectly great example of of the government doing something purely illegal to which is border which is borderline oppressive. You know, the people had no that's taxation without representation, isn't it? The, the people didn't agree to le- agree to that, and their, the people's representatives didn't agree to that in the right way. That is to say, by constitutional amendment. That's the way it had to happen. Didn't take very long, did it? It only took about 100 years for the United States government to go right back to taxation without representation. Think about that. Only about 100 years, and the United States government went right back to what Great Britain was doing. Shocking, isn't it? You think about it. Don't let that example just pass you by and ignore what that means. That's what I mean when I say it can happen here. All these bad things that governments do to oppress their people can happen here. Don't get all blasé about it and, you know, blithely walk about life thinking it can't happen here just because you live in the United States and everything's perfectly safe and wonderful. It's not. And I truly enjoy this part of the letter right here. I'm going to read this section to you again. Quote, The determined resolution of the colonies for the preservation of their common rights to unite in their opposition to those acts. In consequence of these sentiments, they have appointed us the guardians of their rights and liberties, end quote. Us being the Congress at the time in 1774. Isn't that—wouldn't that be nice if every elected representative around the world felt that way? That they were the guardians of their rights and liberties? Boy, wouldn't that be a a different—that'd mind? be a paradigm shift in the history of the world if every elected representative would just feel that way about their job. Because nine times out of ten, that ain't the case. They feel very differently about their job. They feel like they were—more like they were appointed to be our lord, despot, or tyrant— and generally, more morally bankrupt and corrupt, and a band of reprobates—that's the way they feel most of the time, as opposed to being the guardians of liberty. That's a sad commentary. Oh, Roman, you exaggerate. That's not true. They're not that bad, really. Look at how they live. No, no, I'm serious. Look at how they live. You now, Roman, why, why, whatever do you mean? Uh, well, you know, these people—they're a very interesting group of folks. You know, the ability of these people to go into Congress, basically having a normal income, no particular wealth whatsoever, no really big savings at all. They stay in Congress about 10, 15, 20 years, and they come out multimillionaires. How does that happen? You ever ask yourself that question? Not to mention the, the multitudes of properties that these people own. They tend to own multiple houses, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them do. How that happen? And their children, what kind of jobs do their children get? Usually very lucrative jobs, right? Jobs that, you know, most Americans couldn't possibly get for their children, that kind of thing. Isn't that interesting? How do they get those jobs? Well, usually because it has some kind of a connection to a bill that was passed in Congress, and somebody voted in the affirmative, and somebody in a company really liked that, and so they gave somebody a job, their children, that is. You know, it just goes on and on and on with these people. And you really think that those people consider themselves to be the, quote, guardians of their rights and liberties, end quote? No, they don't. It's uh, it's really a different kind of mindset at work there, and we've talked about that before. Keep that in mind. You know, Pay attention to that. Don't ignore that. Don't just accept it as as normal. People do that in the United States especially. They just kind of, they look at the corruption and the rest of it, and they just go, oh, that's normal. That's what they do. That's what politicians do. Stop it. That's a childish mindset. Don't don't do that. Don't accept it. Don't tolerate it. I'm dead serious. Don't do that. Because otherwise, what are you going to get? Exactly what these people were complaining about in this letter to General Gage. You're going to get 1774 all over again. Let us continue, shall we? Let's read this again, quote, We entreat your excellency to consider what a tendency this conduct must have to irritate and force a free people, however well disposed to peaceable measures, into hostilities, end quote. And we actually talked about this on an episode prior. I can't remember exactly which episode it was, but this concept of, there was a letter that we read where somebody had raised this as a thought that, The king and parliament were trying to force a confrontation with the colonists so that they would have every excuse in the world to just take total control. That was in one of the letters that we read. That's not me making that up. That's in one of the letters. And don't governments do that on occasion? Don't they irritate people into hostilities deliberately? You know, the government at times—government has this tendency, this natural tendency of government— I, I've described it, you know, as you know, being like an animal, an irresistible animal urge. They just can't help themselves. That is to say, government as a machine can't help itself. It very, it very much, governments are predatory by their nature. Oh my gosh, Roman, did you just say what I think? You- yes, that's exactly what I said. Governments, I'll say that one more time loud and proud so everybody can really, really soak that up. Preda- governments are predatory by their nature. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? probably not but that that's certainly what i believe having you know, how do i come to that conclusion i don't know i've i've read history books in my life and i've I, i've studied this stuff for a while and i just come to a conclusion that after many years of looking at this kind of thing that governments are predatory by their nature it's what they do they they cannot help themselves that's why i say don't show don't, don't don't let the government know that you take things more seriously than your liberty in other words you're like I use the crazy example of people in their Netflix account don't let the government know that your your Netflix account is more important to you than your liberty otherwise they will use that against you whatever that is whatever that weakness is they will they will drive a nail through it they will find it and drive a nail through it until you start screaming they cannot help themselves do you understand that people even a well-intentioned government can't resist the urge. It is an animal instinct. Now, a lot of folks out there are probably going to disagree with me on this, and they're probably going to be like, oh, Roman, you've gone too far now. You're way off on the deep end. What are you? What are you, anti-government? No, I'm exactly what the founding fathers were. I am suspicious as heck of government. I am very suspicious, and I look at government through a very suspicious eye. Just like the Founding Fathers looked at the standing army through a very suspicious eye. Why? Because they saw what General Gage was doing in Boston in 1774, building the defenses to launch offensive operations into the country of Massachusetts. Their own military turned against them, sent out to the countryside in 1775 to kill people. And they did. They did kill people. There's one person in particular they nearly beat to death. I might tell you his story when we get to that uh, that part that part of the uh, discussion about 1775. Don't ever forget that you know whatever anybody tries to tell you about government, oh, it's just sweet and wonderful they're the protectors of our liberty. no again, otherwise the Bill of Rights would be unnecessary. there would have been there would have been no push ever any by anybody to pass the Bill of Rights why because the governments are the protectors of our liberty. why do we need a bill of rights? Why do we need a document that says the government cannot do this, you cannot do that you can't do this, you can't do that. why do we need that? Heck, why do we need a Constitution? Why do we need a document that limits government? Because that's what the Constitution does, it limits government. It spells out what government can do, and there's a great many things in there that the government... Uh, there's a great many things that are excluded from the Constitution because the government cannot do those things. Not the federal government, anyway. Why would they do that? And why would they give so much power to the state governments? Why wouldn't they just give it, give it all to the federal government, make it easy, make it simple, Just just gobble it all up in one place? if the government is the protector of our liberty? The answer is they're not. They're not the protector of our liberty. They're predatory. The Founding Fathers knew that, and that's why they set up a, a republic the way, such as they did. Very important concept, folks. I mean, the, the, you know, the, there's a great difference between people who view government as predatory, like myself, and then, that is to say, I view government as being predatory, Um, and then people who believe that the government is just um Uncle Sugar, for lack of a better way of putting it. You've heard that term before, Uncle Sugar. It's a It's a play on the term Uncle Sam. Some people think the government's basically just Uncle Sugar. No, it's not. It's not. It's it's not it's not so sweet and innocent as you'd think. And if the government, you know, if the government is predatory by its nature, then I mean, who is the prey of the government? That would be the people, right? The people are the prey. And this this natural friction that takes place between predator and prey, right? It's this uh this this eternal battle that takes place, not a not a not a shooting battle, but just a moral battle and a legal battle, in a sense. We have we have those constitutional rights that ensure that the people of the United States are free, and then we have a government that really views those constitutional rights as an impediment to its power, right? It wants to It wants to move past those rights and do more because it wants more power. More power equals more control, more money, more wealth, all the rest of it. I mean, remember what I said before about how the difference between how normal people live And the way politicians typically live, especially those in Washington, D.C., they live a different kind of life than you and me. They really do. And the reason why they want more power, more control, they want to expand power beyond the Constitution in part. Not all of them do, by the way. Some of them are decent people, don't get me wrong. But a great many of them want to push past that. Because, again, I, I'm, I use the example of, you know, these people's children getting jobs in companies that have some connection to a bill that was passed in Congress, and the congressman just happened to vote in the affirmative, and then their, 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 their son or their daughter finds their way into a job in that company that benefited from that legislation. You see how that works? I mean, but, but for that scenario to be able to work out, Congress has to be able to pass laws that affect that business, right? Right. Well, it can't do that if its power is greatly limited. Congress, that that company may come calling and the congressmen say, well, we can't pass a law because it's illegal for the federal government to do that. They don't want to have to say that to that company. They want to be able to say, yes, I will do that for you because I want my kid to have a job in your company. Right. Or some other benefit, whatever that is. And so in order for them to be able to do that, they have to reach beyond the Constitution and pass laws that have nothing to do with Article one, two, three or anything of the sort in the Constitution uh, so that they can make, uh, you know, president of XYZ company happy so that their son or daughter can go work at XYZ Corporation and get big paycheck. Call me cynical. Some people are going to say, oh, Roman, you're too cynical. How dare you? Well, you know what? You read a few books, you figure this stuff out. Really, the only difference between somebody who's cynical about government and somebody who's not as, you know, the person who's cynical has read some books. That's the difference. You know, there's the old joke about the optimist and the pessimist. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this joke, but it goes a little something like this. It's a rhetorical question. What's the difference between the optimist and the pessimist? The pessimist has more information. That's the that's the that's the that's the answer to the question. The pessimist has more information. It's it's easy to be blissfully ignorant, isn't it? To just kind of walk walk about life being blissfully ignorant to what's going on around you. Those people tend to be fairly optimistic, I find. But the people who actually know what's going on, they tend to be a little bit more pessimistic. Not angry, not hostile, not depressed, but cynical. And there's, there, by the way, yes, there's a difference between somebody who's constantly angry all the time and somebody who's cynical or pessimistic. You can still be a generally happy person and be cynical or pessimistic. I would regard myself as being generally cynical, especially about things concerning government, because, again, the Founding Fathers were. I'm, 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 I'm in very good company. I feel like I'm in good company. You know, and continuing on here, you know, he mentioned they mentioned the Civil War. Quote, "...which may prevent the endeavors of this Congress to restore a good understanding with our parent state and may involve us in the honors of a civil war." End quote. So they they mentioned civil war directly to the military general in charge of Massachusetts. That's pretty brazen to do. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to get his attention. They're trying to tell him, look, we want to avoid this. We do not want to go down this road. We do not want to go down the road of civil war. So please, for crying out loud, could we find a way around this? Could we engage in a discourse about this? That's what they're trying for here. They're trying to do this the right way. Now, riddle me this. Does this sound like a bunch of trigger-happy rich people or elitists who just don't want to pay their taxes? Is that what this sounds like to you? Because it doesn't sound like that to me, and that's kind of the story that we're fed some of the time, isn't it? Bunch of trigger-happy anarchy-type reprobates, didn't want to pay their taxes, blah, 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 just hated government, etc., etc., etc. They didn't hate government, they were just suspicious of it, and as well they should be. I mean, for crying out loud, their, their their government passed these intolerable acts, closed off the port of Boston, destroyed the representative legislatures of Massachusetts in large measure, changed up the judiciary, and dispatched a military governor to basically effect a military dictatorship over the province of Massachusetts, and then they moved hundreds or thousands, actually, of troops into the city of Boston and the immediate area. Would that make you suspicious of your government, because I can guarantee it'd sure make me suspicious of my government. Goodness gracious. And they tell him, they tell him they want that they want him to discontinue his fortifications. Quote, we hope, sir, you will discontinue the fortifications in and about Boston, end quote. They want some peace brought back to this area they want to end this mill this they're, they're they're basically turning boston into a garrison town and they're like you gotta stop this it's making the people nervous for crying out loud and rightfully so wouldn't it make you nervous if the military moved into your city and turned it into a garrison town think about that for a second you know, if you live in a if you live in a city like uh, Austin, Texas, or Sacramento, California, someplace like that, and the military just kind of moved in, started turning it into a garrison city, and they deployed artillery pieces. These 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 people were moving cannon in the city of Boston. That's just like an artillery piece. I've talked before about a 155 millimeter howitzer. You know that the military standard issue military artillery piece. Imagine those pieces being moved into the city and just kind of you know aimed outward into the countryside towards people's farms and houses and stuff like that, and the military setting up blockades, barricades you know and, and moving thousands and thousands of troops into the city would that make you nervous because it would me i i think the i think the founding fathers have a little bit of a legitimate gripe here to, to against uh general gage to say the least not to mention the intolerable acts certainly just uh, just on the on the face of that they have a legitimate gripe so again there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this letter you know and i i talk you know not just about the letter but about the the concepts behind the letter. What What's going on here? What's really leading up to this? And how, how was it the Founding Fathers were able to stand firm, resolute? And again, it, it, a lot of it stems around this concept of people determined to be free against a government that is determined to take advantage of them as, as much as they possibly can. you got to get in front of this kind of stuff. Just, you know, communicate to the government you're determined to be free, but yes— always keep this in mind, you know, the, these, the Founding Fathers dealt with a, a really terrible situation going on with their government, you know, and you don't ever want things to get this bad. And they only ever get this bad when, when, when you know, the the king of England or whoever just gets way out of control with what they're doing, and the parliament and all the rest of it. And keep in mind that, you know, this is, you know, it's, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, some people think that this is just a random, odd outlier, that this doesn't happen in the history of the world. Governments don't ever get this bad. Actually, they do a lot, believe it or not, get this bad. Or worse. I mean, we've seen worse examples of this, for crying out loud. I mean, this is... This isn't even as bad as it can get. Governments do this fairly frequently. Not all governments, but a great many of them. And there's a lesson to be learned here. So let's move on, shall we? Let's move on to this uh, this next letter here. All right, and this letter is going to be the response back to Congress from, quote, Governor Gage, end quote, although I wouldn't refer to him as governor more like military dictator but you know to each his own i'm sure he i'm sure general gage liked to think of himself as a governor you know kind of like those uh you know you get one of those little tin pot dictators from some random country they they call themselves president or something like that to try to imitate the united states of america to create this you know farcical image of some kind of uh, elected leader or something like that president saddam hussein you know rings a bell in that regard same kind of thing and this was written from boston on october 20th of 1774 Quote, Sir, representations should be made with candor and matters stated exactly as they stand. People would be led to believe from your letter to me of the 10th instant that works were raised against the town of Boston, private property invaded, the soldiers suffered to insult the inhabitants, and the communication between the town and country shut up and molested. Nothing can be further from the true situation of this place than the above state. There is not a single gun pointed against the town. No man's property has been seized or hurt except the kinds by the peoples destroying straw, bricks, bought for his service. No troops have given less cause for complaint, and greater care was never taken to prevent it, and such care and attention was never more necessary. From the insults and provocations daily given both officers and soldiers, the communication between the town and country has been always free and unmolested and and is so still. Two works of earth have been raised at some distance from the town, wide of the roads, and guns pointed in them. The remains of old works going out of the town have been strengthened, and guns placed there likewise. People will think differently whether the hostile preparations throughout the country and the menaces of blood and slaughter made this necessary, but I am to do my duty. It gives me pleasure that you are endeavoring at cordial reconciliation with the mother country, which from what has transpired I have despaired of. Nobody wishes better success to such measures than myself. I have endeavored to be a mediator if I could establish a foundation to work upon, and have strongly urged it to people here to pay for the tea, and send a proper memorial to the king, which would be a good beginning on their side, and give their friends the opportunity they seek to move in their support. I do not believe that menaces and unfriendly proceedings will have the effect which many conceive. The spirit of the British nation was high when I left England, and such measures will not abate it. But I should hope that decency and moderation here would create the same, disposition at home. And I ardently wish that the common enemies of both countries may see to their disappointment that these disputes between the mother country and the colonies have terminated like the quarrels of lovers, and increase the affection which they ought to bear each other. I am, sir, your most obedient, humble servant, Thomas Gage. End quote. Okay. Well, there we have his response. That's interesting. Sounds like a reasonable guy, right? Now, keep in mind, again, that this guy is effectively the military dictator of a now martial law state of Massachusetts, effectively. (laughs) Certainly, Boston is a martial law state. Thus, the the problem we have here of all the troops being stationed in the city of Boston, the large defensive works being built up to defend the city from whatever perceived attack it is that General Gage thinks is going to happen in his delusional mind, but he's, you know, he's he's going about this very much, you know, what he's doing in Massachusetts, very much building up the military presence there. Now, one might say, and I'm sure G- General Gage would say the same, and he, he fairly well, he fairly well does by way of this letter, that you know he's just following orders from the king, you know, dispatched who dispatched him there, you know, go ahead and bring in the troops and build the build up the defensive works and so on and so forth. I'm sure, and I'm sure he would probably say that of what happens in 1775 later on, that he was just following orders. Now, isn't that a dangerous? concept to just follow orders i don't consider anything else just just follow orders i mean haven't we heard that before throughout history military folks just they're just following orders yeah and i'm sure you know nothing bad is ever going to come of that of course we know that it does i mean many times throughout history you know military folks just following orders all kinds of really terrible things happen and i mentioned um you know i mentioned you know this possible scenario before of you know w- what if it was today you know, and some some military general moved into an American city and started setting up military operations and turning it into a garrison city and moving the troops in there and all the rest of it. I mean, that would make people a little nervous, I think. And what happens if, you know, the military is, is doing all this and expands out and starts doing the other things like what happened in 1775? All because they're just following orders. Do you think the United States military could fall victim to something like that? I think it probably can. Which, again, is why I say, you know, keep an eye on it. The Founding Fathers were suspicious of a standing military for a reason. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to have a standing military. Very necessary, but very dangerous at the same time. And, you know, all the while, in the back of my mind, when I think about a standing army, I think about this military at work in 1774 in Boston. And more specifically, I think about what they end up doing in 1775. Very, very dangerous stuff. All under the, uh, you know, this concept of uh, just following orders. I was just following orders. You know, that kind of thing. And so he denies some of the accusations made in the letter to, from Congress. He uh, he says that it's not quite that bad. And he may be right in some respects. It's entirely possible. But I don't think he's accurate in what he says about these military works. He basically says that the military works are much do about nothing, right? Okay. He says, quote, There is not a single gun pointed against the town, end quote. I don't even know that the the people in Congress were accusing him of that. It really wasn't so much that people were worried that the guns were aimed against the town. The concern was, is what is he going to do with all these military preparations and why is it necessary? What does he think is going to happen? Does he know something that we don't? And the answer is yes, he does. He knows that offensive military operations are going to be conducted. He knows that. I, I would argue that he probably knew that at this point. Now, somebody might disagree with me. That's perfectly fine. But I'd say he probably knew at some level that something was going to happen. And he was getting ready for that. And he was building these defenses around Boston so that he could, you know, ha- again, have a launching off point, And so that in case there was some kind of counterattack, that he could defend the city. That is to say, defend his soldiers. He didn't care about defending the people so much as so he cared about defending his soldiers. And his military base that he has, ba- he's basically building up there. He mentions these insults against his officers, you know. He, uh... Says, quote, from the insults and provocations daily given to both officers and soldiers, end quote. He's talking about the, the people of Boston harassing the soldiers in some regard. Is it possible that that's happening? Of course it's possible that it's happening. Now, somebody uh, yeah, somebody might think, you know, well, you know, Roman, would you, would you harass the officers and soldiers in a city, in a garrison city if it was your town that was basically under siege by the military? You know, initially I probably would not. I would probably be a little bit more diplomatic about it in the beginning, but if that didn't work, I would certainly uh, consider, you know, verbally harassing the soldiers and officers that were conducting um, such an operation as that. If it were under these kinds of circumstances, it always depends upon the circumstances, but in a situation like this where you largely have a peaceable town and a peaceable province, and the military is dispatched over there to basically shut down the port, you know, upturn the legislatures and the judiciary... And basically, you know, disband the state charter and all the rest of it. That would be like today, you know, a military governor coming into or any any given state and saying, "Well, we're going to abolish the state constitution and we're going to change up the judiciary." The the state legislature, by the way, is going to be we're going to start canceling, you know, the the state legislature and shutting people out of there, and we're going to re- replace them with people that I approve of. Blah blah blah. What I you know think think about that scenario. You gotta, you gotta do apples to apples here. Would I would I be opposed to the officers and soldiers? Would I verbally harass them in that situation? Yeah, if reason didn't work, I certainly would. Generally speaking, I would try to appeal to their sense of law and the Constitution prior before doing that though. And hopefully reason would prevail, but if it didn't, then then certainly I would I would harass them sure. And I'd be well within my rights to do so, just like the uh, the Founding Fathers probably felt themselves uh, justifiable in what they did. I mean, at this point, the people of Boston felt like their livelihood was under attack and that, their, again, their city was turning into a military outpost. You actually saw something similar to that in Tiananmen Square in China. You know, when the soldiers were originally sent in there, uh, based on what I know about the situation, the originally the people who were there protesting in, in some of these Chinese cities, but that city in particular... They were trying to appeal to their soldiers' sense of right and wrong, appeal to them like family, almost in, in many ways. That it, and that worked f- kind of briefly for a moment, and then eventually additional troops were sent in, in a, a very aggressive fashion. And of course, it ended with the you know the the Chinese troops you know shooting their own people in the backs with AK-47s. So again, keep in mind what can happen when your military is turned against you. You know, if in, in, in the case of Tiananmen Square, it wasn't like these were terrible people. They really just wanted a slice of freedom. They weren't living a particularly good life. you got to understand, things were pretty miserable in China for a really long time. It wasn't it wasn't pleasant. Let's just put it that way. For a very long time, for a great many people. It's a country that came out of, I mean, it was starting to come out of really terrible poverty that was uh, imposed upon it by this uh, bizarro world Chinese communist um, political system that they had it, it was d- different than it is today not like not like today it's something special and awesome or anything of the sort it's definitely not but uh, people suffered in a great many ways and they they wanted just a little bit of freedom and what did they get for it yeah they got bullets <laughs> that's how the government responded governments tend to tend to do that from time to time don't they yeah did they do because the the people having a little bit more freedom and a little bit more uh, liberty means that the government has a little bit less power, and we can't have that now, can we that, that oh no, that's asking too much. We can't have that later on, General Gage says quote "It gives me pleasure that you're endeavoring at a cordial reconciliation with the mother country end quote you know i don't I don't doubt that. I don't dispute that he probably wanted a peaceable resolution to this." I, I do, I do think that he he did know that the military operation was going to be expanded, or at least he su- certainly suspected that it would be expanded later on. And so he's not necessarily being honest with the with his letter here. But I do believe that in some regard he did want some kind of a peaceable solution to this. I just think, and, and he, he tells he tells you exactly what kind of peaceful solution he was really looking for here, though. And it's not the one the Congress is looking for. These are two different peaceful solutions. "Quote: I have endeavored to be a mediator." If I could establish a foundation to work upon and have strongly urged it to people here to pay for the tea, end quote. In other words, just give in, just give up. They're agitated, you know, that the people are not wanting to buy the tea. There's basically a boycott. People don't want to participate. You want to sell us tea with this tax and all the rest of it, and fine, we're not going to buy it. We're going to boycott it. Well, Britain didn't like that very much. There's no money to be made there when the people are boycotting British goods now, is there? And so General Gage's response there is just give in, just give up. Start paying for the tea that's what kind of peaceful solution general gage is looking for surrender and the people the people of congress and the people of massachusetts they they didn't want to do that we read about that you know a few episodes back the carpenter the ship carpenter talking to william tudor yeah that guy wasn't going to give up and here's a here's a really good sentiment from general gage that i that i agree with quote and i ardently wish the common enemies of both countries may see to their disappointment that those disputes between the mother country and the colonies have terminated like the quarrels of lovers, end quote. So he's looking... This guy has a good perspective in this regard. I give credit where credit is due. He's thinking about the common enemies of the British Empire. That is to say, the the Britain itself and the colonies out there in America. And he wants to send a message to them that this dispute has been resolved and that there's not going to be any further division. Because a divided British Empire is a weaker British Empire, and that is absolutely true. And, you know, I feel the same way about situations today. This is another one of those scenarios. You, are you starting to get the understanding that a great many of these things that we talk about on this on this podcast are very, very similar to what goes on in the real world today and how applicable all of this really is? I find it quite striking, actually. And I feel the same as this, when he says he wishes the the common enemies of both countries may see to their disappointment that these disputes are ended. I mean, riddle me this, I mean, from, from the perspective of the United States, don't you wish that our common enemies abroad, that is to say, in other countries, would see us reconciled towards liberty and freedom, and our disputes settled, and that we return to our united stance, and at least those principles in which we can actually agree, Historically the ones that we typically agreed in. And they were agreed to in the Bill of Rights and Constitution, Declaration of Independence and all that. And we know that because the various colony representatives signed off on those documents. Wouldn't that be a great message to our enemies abroad? Just like General Gage wants to communicate to the British Empire's enemies abroad, shouldn't the United States endeavor to communicate that same thing? Shouldn't we have the same sentiment as General Gage? I would argue that we should. We should have the same sentiment because it's a good perspective to have you don't want to lose sight of your enemies abroad oftentimes in the united states we do this we forget that there are enemies outside this country they don't they don't have our they don't have our best wishes in heart they really don't this country the united states is almost singularly focused inward over the last 15 to 20 years and it's really even despite the war on terror whatever you know whatever what have you for the most part the united states is almost singularly focused inward, when it comes to, you know, what are we going to do going forward? It's really all about me, me, me. And not me as in the host of this podcast, but me as in, you know, from the perspective, perspective of the uh, American constituency. And that's a problem. And that's, you know, and it's people focused on that and trying to make everything a federal issue. Everything's got to be a federal issue. That, that really just sows the seeds of division in a great many ways, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, didn't I mention that uh, on a on a previous episode about people trying to attack the identities of these fifty states and the person and the the, the, in- the independent personalities of these fifty states and trying to dissolve those identities and turning and in- turn it into one kind of monolithic federal institution instead of those fifty states just accepting you know each other for who they are and, and honestly just leaving each other alone and casting a glance outward towards our mutual enemies. You know, the 50 states of the United States of America, the 50 states of the Union, we all have a common enemy, probably several common enemies outside the United States. They're out there, and they're gunning for us. And what are we doing? What in the world are we doing to each other? And why are we trying to tear down this state and that state and this other state over here, and maybe this whole block of states over here? We need to tear those states down. And we need to have this uh, de facto... War of words and war of ideologies between these various states in these regions. You, that usually happens when, you know, some state is trying to impose its identity on every other state. Again, making everything a federal And One mechanism they use for that is trying to make everything a federal issue. Some things have to be a federal issue. And they're they're usually mentioned very specifically in the Constitution. And to the extent it's not mentioned there, it's a state issue. And leave it to the states to decide. And quit this constant dividing and division and battle and all the rest of it, because General Gage is on to something here. Because while you're engaged in that kind of division and that kind of constant battle between the states, are the enemies of the United States are watching, just like the enemies of the British Empire were watching this. And I would say, keep a mind to that. Keep that in mind. I frankly, I frankly am very concerned about this. You know, and and one, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment and talk about this. Do you have any idea why it is this country battles so viciously over the presidency of the United States? Why in the world does this country battle so hard? And why do things get so contentious between people in the United States over who's the president of the United States? You ever wonder why? Because it shouldn't be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way. The reason why is because we have decided to make everything a federal issue, and the President of the United States has a lot of power that he shouldn't have. Uh-oh. Oh my gosh, Roman. Listen to this guy. Did, did you, did Roman just say what I think he said? Oh my gosh. Did he just say that the President of the United States shouldn't have as much power as he had? That's exactly what I said. You want to try to quiet this country down? You want to try to get this country to be as amicable as possible? Take as much power as you possibly can away from that man or that woman who's president to the United States. Take their power away from them. Make it so that they are as absolutely useless as possible. Now, you can't take all the power away. The executive branch is supposed to have some power. Don't get me wrong. But this constant... Dipping into people's business and manipulating everything, the executive orders that just go on and on and on, the lists of them just seem to stretch as long as my arm, you know, and, and you, you could get, you could get, you know, a, you could look at a list of these executive orders, it's lengthy. I actually went back and looked at some of these executive orders one time. This was like 20 years ago. I went back and looked at some of these things from the Truman administration all the way up to relatively modern day. And it's just some, some of it is normal stuff affecting the military and military rank and so, so on and so forth. But in some of it is so it is just some of the most bizarre crap. And it's like, what's the president doing with all this stuff? Why is he involved in any of this stuff? Just shut up. Man, for crying out loud, most of this stuff should be for the states to deal with. See, because here's the problem. When the president has too much power, and he does, you get this situation where no longer is it the purview of the governors and the state legislatures to deal with something. Now, all of a sudden, it's the president that's dealing with it. Well, that's just one guy. And maybe the people in Idaho like what he's doing, and they're happy with it, but the people in Alaska absolutely hate what he's doing. That's the problem we get into, and that's why that's why we get so worked up over President of the United States in this country. It shouldn't be that way. The people of Idaho should be looking to the governor of Idaho and the state legislature for what they want to do, and the people of Alaska should be looking to the governor of Alaska and the state legislature for what they want to do, and then they'll be happy. Guess what? Idaho then won't be imposing its will on Alaska, and Alaska will not be imposing its will on Idaho. Does that make sense, for crying out loud? How hard is this? Yet we've got a country that runs around every four years like a chicken with its head cut off, trying to figure out how to make all this magic work. It's really simple. You want to make this thing work? Then that that, that individual called President of the United States take as much of his power away as possible. As possible. Now, some of it you can't. And like I said, there are some legitimate federal issues that the federal government is supposed to have purview over. Again, it's all written down in the Constitution. Maybe we should just follow that rubric. There's a novel idea. As I'm certain the Founding Fathers told us that once upon a time, we've just chosen to ignore them. It's, it's actually quite interesting, the, uh, yeah, the things the Founding Fathers told us not to do versus what we actually do today. We have ignored so much of what they told us to do or not do. And that's why we get into these contentious debates about this, that, and the other thing, including President of the United States. That problem's never going to get solved, folks. It's never going to get solved until you take his power away from him. Not all of it but a lot of it. You cut the legs out from underneath that office and send it back send that send that power back to the state legislatures and the governors. Everybody going to be a lot more happy. Then the people of Idaho can live how they want to live under their 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 particular way of doing things and the people of Alaska can live how they want to live. And the only thing that we're really that we really need to be concerned about is what's in those bill of rights and that constitution. Everything else just kind of let it be. Let 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 the people of Idaho do Idaho, and let the people of Alaska do Alaska. Now this is this is what we like to call common sense, and it's the way the country was originally set up. But we've slowly but surely gotten away from it. And while we're dividing ourselves on these issues because we don't know how to we don't know how we don't understand how the fifty state thing is supposed to work, our enemies abroad are watching and laughing and just, and just yucking it up. They're enjoying this. Boy, they are enjoying the heck out of this. So, so thank you to General Gage. I never thought I'd, I never thought I would say this. Thank you, General Gage, for the perspective. General Thomas Gage, our guest on the podcast here today, has done us a solid in telling us exactly what we need to be focused on. Proof positive that even a broken clock is right twice a day. Thomas Gage, our good friend. So, with that said, I am going to have some concluding remarks in the next section. But that fairly well wraps up our discussion on General Gage and the Congress. And like I said, I will say a few more words about this this you know, this general issue in the in the aggregate, the two letters that we talked about here in the next section. And so let's do that right now. All right. Well, so we have here in this episode the founding fathers of the United States, specifically those in Congress, trying to reach out to General Gage to try to bridge that gap in discussion of what he's doing, the circumstances under which he's doing it, and the grievances that the colonists have to the actions that he's taking and his his work there by order of the king. And General Gage responds by basically saying, well, we've got good reason to, to be here, basically, and... You know, we're suffering abuses and insults at the hands of the, the citizens of Boston. And our military preparations are really much ado about nothing, which was a lie. And I say that based on what's going to happen in 1775. Again, I have 250 years of hindsight. That's how I know General Gage is lying. So that's that's where we're at there between Congress and General Gage. And this is going to begin to set up a, uh, a profile in contrast between the United States Congress and General Gage and the conflict that's getting ready to really spool up. General Gage, I think, you know, was a man who really did want a peaceful solution. The problem is he wanted the wrong kind of peaceful solution. He wanted the colonists to get down on bended knee and thank their lucky stars they had such a tyrant as King George III. And why do I say that? Because, again, I mean, in his letter there that, that, we, that I read to you on this on this episode... He wanted the colonists to pay for the tea. I mean, really, his sentiment should be, I don't care if you pay for the tea, I don't care if you buy the tea, don't buy the tea, it's your choice, this is a free market after all, you can do whatever you want in that regard. It's not what he said. He He wants the colonists to do exactly what King George III wants them to do. When in reality, the colonists should have free will to buy the tea or not buy the tea, or to boycott British goods or not boycott British goods. That is their right. That is their fundamental right to do. And again, you can see that this conflict... It's not about a bunch of crazy old people living in the colonies, rich people not wanting to pay their taxes. That's not what this is about at all. And that carpenter that we heard from, the ship's carpenter on the docks, reported to us by Mr. William Tudor, amongst many others, including like an Abigail Adams and so on and so forth. These these folks were not rich people not wanting to pay their taxes or something deeper going on here. And it's what that's it's what some folks in the history classes don't want you to know. Yes, I said it out loud. There are some good history teachers out there, folks. I've known a few in my time. In college, I had actually a really good history teacher. It was um I remember what year it was too. It was it was uh 2005. I remember it because uh, Hurricane Katrina happened while I was in that college class. I was not in Louisiana. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just I just remember that Hurricane Katrina happened that semester, and it just so happened I was in college. Uh, That semester, and there was a history class I was taking. I had a very good history professor that year, especially. There's some good ones out there, but there's also some out there who really don't want you to know that, you know, these founding fathers, that it wasn't just a bunch of rich people. That's why I made that previous episode. Who were the founding fathers? Exactly. It was a lot of people. And the vast majority of them were nowhere even close to rich or wealthy. And they all felt, for the most part, the ones that were participating in this, they all felt pretty much the same as the uh, the founding fathers that were in the Congress and in the state houses. Now, there were loyalists in the colonies who didn't feel that way, and there was, a, there was some people in the middle who didn't really feel that way either. But amongst the people who really participated in this endeavor, and there were many, many thousands of them, staunch patriots. So we had we had quite the discussion today about government, predatory as it is, and King George III's government was no exception to the rule. It was definitely a predatory government. All governments are. They really are. They're all predatory. So again, the next time you think that government is going to be the defender of your liberty, think, think again. And they may act like it every once in a while. They may talk a good game. They may even, they may even walk the walk every once in a while. But for the most part, the, government's, uh, the government is an animal. And while it's under the control of the Constitution, it is leashed and it is under control. But it's always trying to get out of control. It's always trying to get off the leash, right? And the United States government is no exception to that. It can happen here. I keep saying that, you know, it can happen here. And I, I mentioned that court case about the uh, the taxes, how it was declared unconstitutional, a part of it, unconstitutional in the late 1800s, and a constitutional amendment was necessary to fix that. And how it only took 100 years for the United States to go all the way back to what Great Britain was doing with taxation without representation. Didn't take very long, did it? Why? Because government is naturally predatory. That's why. You think I don't? If for, there's going to be a few folks out there who stumble into this podcast, think I don't know what I'm talking about. But believe it or not, I've actually studied history for quite a while. I, I tend to know what I'm talking about. And you know, governments do some real crazy stuff. They do some real wacky stuff, don't they? And General Gage is a very clear representation of that. You know, he's uh, he's nefarious in his intent because he's lying to us about what his military is doing there. He knows that military, all those thousands of soldiers that that are building up in Boston. This is not just about uh, keeping the peace. It's not what this is about. And oftentimes, oftentimes in the United States I think we get this impression that we you know, I mentioned I mentioned presidential elections, how this country likes to tear itself apart every four years over this kind of crap. And how the smartest thing the United States could do is take power away from that guy or gal, whoever's president. That way they're that way they're relatively inconsequential. The president of the United States should be looking outward towards foreign enemies. That's really the almost the entire mission of the president, and that's it. And signing bills into law to the extent that he actually agrees with them, and to the extent that they're actually constitutional, which is a stretch these days. Other than that, he should be looking outward towards the, the enemies of the United States. But more and more often, the President of the United States is looking inward. This is dangerous ground, folks. This is just like what King George III was doing. He was looking inward towards his supposed political enemies inside the British Empire, and he was effectively declaring war on them for little or no reason. Instead of looking outward, as he should have been. And he, he came really close to destroying the British Empire in the process. The United States is going to be a very weakened country. These 50 states united are going to be very, very weakened because of this bizarro world obsession we have with destroying political enemies inside the country. Very dangerous stuff. And this this gets into this concept of teams. Like, is your team in the White House? Is, is the other team in the White House? Gotta stop that crap. Gotta stop it. We're gonna end right back up in 1774 all over again. You keep this up. It doesn't, I don't care whose team is in the White House, frankly speaking. I don't give a crap. And I don't care whose team is in control of Congress. I don't care. You know what I care about? The national security of the United States of America. That's what I care about, amongst a few other things. But I don't care about teams. And what do I mean when I say I don't care about which team is is in there or which team is not in there? What I what I mean by that is is I, I focus on the individuals who are there. What are they actually doing? I don't let I don't get blinded by the team. It's like oh, it's my team, so everything they do is okay. This team is uh, this other team over here is bad, so everything that they do is bad. You can't you can't get wrapped up in that crap. You're just asking for trouble. You get wrapped up in that, and unfortunately, most of the is wrapped up in that. And it's exactly what John Adams told us not to do. Shocker, there will be a discussion about that coming down the pike. But that's why I spend so much time on this podcast talking about virtue and the individual and what what these people were like, the differences between the politician that was active in Great Britain at the time versus the politician—well, I don't even—and again, I don't even like to call them politicians. We talked about this on a previous episode. The people who actually served in Congress at this time, they were very, very different people. And politicians today more clearly reflect a politician from Great Britain in 1774 than they do a congressman who was in Congress in 1774. So teams teams shouldn't be the focus here. It's the individual. Teams just serve as a as a as a as a blinding element. It just blinds you to what the individuals are doing. You get obsessed about the team, you stop focusing on the individuals and what they're actually doing. And for those of you out there who think that, well, nothing bad can happen so long as my team is in control. I'm happy and I'm celebrating. I, I go to political rallies and political parties, and you know, on that Tuesday in November, when my team wins, I'm celebrating, I'm happy, I'm laughing, and I'm clapping. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. You should be sitting off from a distance with a watchful eye, very cautious and very skeptical about what they're doing. And you should be nervous, because at any given time, that predatory government, that team that you love so much, can turn against you like an animal, like the animal that it is. Just like General Gage was turned loose on his own countrymen in 1775, and he sent his troops out into the countryside to murder his own people, to murder British subjects for no reason, no reason at all, other than that child, King George III, was a tyrannical lunatic. On one of my Patreon podcasts, I made the suggestion that people go back and look at those pictures from the American Civil War. And they look really hard at those pictures of the the dead bodies on the battlefield. And they're out there. You'll find them. And the broken, contorted faces on those dead bodies. It's It's really... It's a sobering experience to look at those pictures and many other pictures similar to it, like from World War I, for example, and some of the video that was shot from some of the survivors of World War I who were all screwed up. That's, 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 that's what's at stake here, really. That's what the Founding Fathers were trying to fight against, is that kind of thing happening in their own country. At the hands of General Gage. Or some other general. General Cornwallis. I mean, whoever you want to talk about. The list goes on. General Clinton. But yeah, this is a longer than usual kind of exit to the podcast, and I, I don't, I don't know how you folks feel about this kind of thing. Me talking about this, I, I wonder sometimes if some of you folks think I get a little bit dark with this history when I try to convey the lessons that the that, that I that I I really do believe the founding fathers would want you to know. Uh, because again, this isn't uh, a lot of. Sometimes I joke around on the podcast, and I I say some jokes mostly about Netflix, but. I wonder how you folks handle the darker parts of this podcast when things get real serious and I start talking about life and death and bodies on a battlefield and the broken contorted faces on the dead bodies. I don't know. But again, I try to I try to impress upon everybody that this is not the Disney World Fantasyland history podcast. This is this is the real history podcast right here. And I, I'm not I'm not here to, you know, be a jokester. Although I, I like to joke once in a while because it's good fun. You know, if you folks, you know, think I get a little too dark sometimes, a little too cynical, you just let me know. I'm curious about the, you can leave a review on the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or again, if you choose to subscribe on Patreon, you can go over to Patreon. But really all I'm trying to do is convey to you that this is some serious stuff we're talking about here. And it does have real world applications for everybody on the planet today. Seven to eight billion people on the planet today. Every single person human being breathing oxygen right now this second could benefit from these lessons that happened during this period of time because this this revolutionary war thing and the time leading up to it is a great great lesson in the relationship between people and a government out of control and it's going to happen to every country sooner or later if it hasn't happened already it happened in the United States under the British Empire, it'll probably happen in the United States again, and it's going to happen to every single country in the world because without fail, governments eventually get out of control. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, despite how serious it was and how much I got off onto a uh, a tear about predatory government and all the rest of it because because of General Gage being loosed upon the American people by the British Empire. Because this is going to have tragic consequences, it really is. It's really a tragedy in the history of the world. And many people are going to die. I say that from the perspective of 1774. Obviously, from the perspective of 2022, when I'm recording this podcast, many people already died. From uh, we're, we're looking, we're standing in 1774 right now, casting our glance forward, and I'm telling you, a great many people are going to die, and it's serious. This isn't a, this isn't mythology. I mentioned that on like one of the very early episodes of this podcast that sometimes people talk about the founding fathers like they're mythology. These people were alive, and many of them died on the field of battle and elsewhere in prison ships under the torture and murderous rage of a government out of control. And if you think it can't happen here, you're wrong. And I don't care where you are in the world. When I say here, I mean wherever you're at. Could be the United States, could be the United Kingdom, could be Ireland, could be Japan, could be Belgium, Germany, France, Italy, Russia, South Africa. The list goes on. We're all in this together. We really are. We have to keep a watch out for this kind of thing. Governments can be good things that that can really do some good. They really can. You know, governments are really the conduit through which we kind of work together and do a lot of things. We build the roads. We uh, provide military defense and all the rest of it. A lot of really good things can happen through government. But don't ever let your guard down. Don't do it. And don't start celebrating when your team wins and take your eye off the ball. Because history doesn't give a crap about you and your team. It really doesn't. And the Founding Fathers, I'm going to be real honest with you, they don't give a crap about you and your team. They care about freedom and liberty. They care about constitutional rights but that and responsibilities, too, by the way. You can't have the rights without the responsibilities, but they don't give a crap about your team. So let's continue forward in this podcast. And I, as always, it is a great honor to have you folks with me on this podcast. This is an incredibly long summation on this podcast, longer than I usually do. But, you know, you folks, you know, especially you folks who are regular listeners to this podcast, I've mentioned this before, I, I have a huge amount of respect for you because TLDR does not apply to you. And I like that about you. And I think, I think you folks really do understand also that this, this history is very important. And it may not seem like that because we're just really kind of walking around in the very early stages of this. We haven't gotten to the war yet. But it's very important that we spent quite a bit of time talking about how it happened because if you want to try to avoid this kind of thing happening again, you have to know how to stop it. You have to know how to get in front of it because you don't ever want this thing to happen again. And if you think it can't, you're wrong. I'm sure people back in the 1770s said, oh, it can't happen here. This is the British Empire. It's wonderful here. Uh Uh-huh. Fast forward a few years. Dead bodies, more dead bodies, and military on the march, all the rest of it. It happens. So let's, let's make sure that never happens again. Let's learn the lessons from history so we don't repeat it. Let's prove the wise old man wrong. History will not repeat itself here. Not not that kind of history. We want good history to repeat itself, I guess, but we don't want bad history to repeat itself. So let's march together on our study group here, all of us, students of the Founding Fathers. And next episode, we're going to have some more good information for you. Until then, this is Roman signing out. Thank you.